Welcome to the Filmmaker and Fans Podcast. In this week's episode, we discuss the 2001 award-winning film, Amelie. Using Amelie as our foundation, we explore topics such as the wide-ranging narrative techniques used in this film, the power of intuition in filmmaking, and the role of humor in building connections with audiences. As a reminder, if you want to watch the actual clip that we watched at the beginning of this episode, feel free to follow the video link in the show notes. Like, I mean, you know, last episode was, I guess we can consider us in it right now. So last episode was Monster, uh, which mm-hmm. is a heavy lift, in my opinion, to prep for and, and kind of get into the, the mindset for. But this is such a drastic shift in so many ways. Um, and again, I watched, I watched this one last night in prep, but I had the opportunity to actually see this on the big screen again. So the local, uh, the Alamo Drafthouse here uh, just happened to be showing this for the past like week here uh, here again so that was a nice little treat but so the one we uh speaking of which the the film we'll be talking about today on today's episode is amelie uh so i'm going to give some basic information and then we'll watch a clip i uh i chose the phone booth clip the phone booth scene uh which could be a little uh traditional i guess or, or an easy go-to but i love it so i think it was a, a good one for us to watch all right, so some basic info on this one. Amelie was released in 2001 by writer-director Jean-Pierre Junette. Junette. Jean-Pierre Junette. Starring Audrey uh, Tattoo. Don't pronounce the T. So the yeah. summary is... Dis- yeah, we what is have it? this. Uh, you don't pronounce T's in the French language, so Jeanette. Perfect. No, I, <laughs> this is... I, I say we do keep it, so this is great. Um, all right, so the summary is, <laughs> the summary is, despite being caught in her imaginative world, Amelie, a young waitress, decides to help people find happiness. Her quest to spread joy leads her on a journey where she finds true love. Now, this, uh, this scene is, to set it up a little bit, it's, um, it's the first person that she has done good for, uh, and she's about to experience and watch and observe this person uh, experience the good thing that she's done for them um and it's just beautiful and this i I picked this scene specifically because it has so many of the things that i want to talk about uh that are so rich and and interesting about this film um so yeah any any thoughts before we get into it love this film so very much because it has a joie de vivre it is a uh, it, 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 it makes you love life more and makes you hope uh, for all of humankind because it goes to kind of a surreal examination of our collective nature. And it wildly conjectures that we may be decent and loving after all. Uh, I was second guessing that clip before playing it, and I'm so glad we watched that one. You uh, know, I have so many well, areas. Just the look at her face. Go. I mean, casting is half of film directing, and um, wonderful actress. But just look at her physicality—the wide set eyes. She has an innocence, and that's what's so wonderful about this, or about Renoir, or about Capra, is that it takes a mature mind to create a portrayal of an immature sensibility, uh, an innocence that we all desire, and a prism by which we wish we could see the world as a place of kindness, love, and decency. And we think it's surreal because we don't experience the world that way, and we mistake cynicism for sophistication. Uh, people who are negative um, and hateful or angry or cynical will often say to everyone else, well, let's talk about the real world. The presumption is that they have uh, a monopoly or they understand the real world, and the real world is dark and cynical and transactional um, and mean-spirited and short, brutish, and cruel. Um, Maybe it is, but is that to presume that someone who has a belief that love and kindness also inhabit this world, are they not sophisticated? Um, or do they just have a different view? We're so concerned about naivete because that would imply that we can be taken advantage of. 
that we put on our collective game faces um, and aren't as open to the presentation of affection or our ability to provide it to others as we might be. Um, so philosophically, I love this film and it begins in the innocence of her face because it goes to the innocence and decency of her uh, character. And the fact they make everything else surreal goes to the idea that this must be a surreal understanding of an otherwise physical and cynical world. Sorry, just an idea that I had. No, this is perfect. I, I So techniques, and we were, were skirting around it a little bit, but narrative techniques and just filmmaking techniques in general, I really want to talk about a lot on this one because it's just packed full of this mixed bag of all these different things that the filmmaker and just everybody involved that what they're doing to create what we're seeing. So I think, I think that's a good place uh, to start. So this film, it, like I said, it uses just this blend of different techniques. For example, like it combines first and third person, it has nonlinear storytelling, and it even uses these little just fantastic vignettes at the beginning uh, or in throughout, but to introduce and give more information for the characters, uh, which connects you to the characters in different ways, which is wonderful. Um, and the director does this in other films too. Uh, so it's, it's part of, it's part of his approach to filmmaking. So my first question is in this area. Uh, so outside of things like story elements, like plot and character arcs, uh, have you ever personally experimented with, uh, unconventional narrative techniques like this in your own work? <laughs> That's all I do. Um, um, and it's important <laughs> that you say conventional. Because what is convention or orthodoxy accepts uh, mediocrity. Um, it's to say that mm. we're looking at art and we have an agreed upon approach to our particular art form. Now, we don't see that in painting. If we saw that in painting, then uh, when representational art first began, we never would have had anything that followed. So uh, cubism, abstract expressionism, uh, impressionism, uh, modernism, all those things would not exist because they're principally experiments in form rather than content. And why does an artist in that, or a tonalism in music, or a radical undertakings in architecture, um, why do artists experiment in form? Because they're trying to find a method in which their art is more expressive um, and ultimately more effective in altering um, the audience or reaching the audience. You have to periodically experiment and you have to change as the zeitgeist changes. Audiences change. They become bored with the old form. Experiment I've mentioned here before that they show a conventional Hollywood film 10 minutes in, they stop it and they ask the audience if they know how the film's going to end. And 90% of audiences can anticipate how the film's going to finish. Why? Because we have this orthodoxy about the three acts and where the climax is going to come and the introduction of conflict and, um, you know, the character uh, arc and the page 50 turn and all the rest of it. And even though we may not teach every audience this specific methodology, it's known or buried in their uh, unconscious. So they can anticipate the end. If you anticipate the end, where's the drama? Where's the excitement? Where's the interest? Uh, there isn't any. The great thing about using um, radical narrative approaches is it makes everything that follows a surprise. The way life is a surprise. You know, the old joke, how do you make God laugh, make plans? That's the way you should view film narrative as well. The audience shouldn't know where it's going. And secondly, how does art work? Um, does, is it Proust-like or Joycean, or is it straightforward narrative? I want to meet the person who wakes up in the morning and knows exactly what all the episodes of their life's going to be uh, for that day and for the week and for the month that follow. Uh, our life is constantly altered. It's variable. It's full of new stimuli. It's full of new obstacles. And what makes life interesting is that we can anticipate which direction it's going to go. Uh, and in art, if art is meant to imitate something, what's it imitating? Our physical experience of the world or other movies. Well, our physical experience of the world is this. Uh, as you and I speak, I am remembering things from my past, other conversations uh, I've had, conversations you and I've had. I'm also thinking about my imagined future, my dream world that I inhabit, my uh, fantasies. I'm also cognizant of where I am at this moment. I'm thinking of the audience listening uh, to this. I'm thinking of what you're thinking. 
all these different things happening simultaneously. But the mind jumps back and forwards into imagination and its experience, as much as it can experience, physical reality. So when Proust wrote his novel, because we're talking about French culture and part of the French continuum, um, he jumped all around from memory to fantasy uh, to what was au courant. Um, uh, Faulkner uh, did the same thing. Joyce did the same thing. It goes to the platform for the presentation of ideas to engage an audience. Shouldn't we present it in a way that the human mind and the mind of our audience works? which is jumping from subject to subject, uh, going from past to future, and from imagine, the imagined world to the physical, ordinary world, as this film does. So it has a dreamlike quality, because even though we want to deny it, our consciousness has a dreamlike quality, because we're not part of an ordered, linear, structured world. We're part of our interior um, complex narrative. So do you, uh, are there, we've talked about break, just as an example, we've talked about breaking the fourth wall uh, on another film before, and they do this, they do it in this one as well, uh, and address the audience directly at times. And things, you know, series like Fleabag, for example, uses this device in a very big way. Uh, are there, and I would assume from, you know, be like, I would assume a filmmaker, like this director, for example, they have their favorites that they use, and they use them uh, in their work as they go. Uh, in many films, do you have any? Uh, do you have any of these specifically that you like uh, more than others, or use more than others, or is it just unique to each project? Well, you know, I like to do things um, that engage the audience in different ways. I make a little diagram uh, when I'm making my plan about how scenes are going to work, and I think intellectually, in terms of narratively, what information am I conveying to the audience? Exposition, exposition by its nature is always kind of uninteresting. We sometimes feel that uh, our film necessitates it, so we have to provide certain information to the audience, but it's rarely um, interesting. What I'm more interested in very often is the visceral, the physical um, emotional engagement or um, the physical becoming the manifestation of the emotional engagement. So I like to do things that stimulate an audience. For example, the way a camera moves. If you push a camera into a face very suddenly, the audience feels that something significant is happening. If we just use a close-up, there's a greater emotional intensity. If we use a close-up with an extreme wide-angle lens, we feel right away at some not conscious level that we are inhabiting a world that is different from the world that we inhabit, and it becomes instantly more interesting. It can be overused uh, to the point that we get the audience gets exhausted with it and it no longer is an effective device. But in this film, the use of a wide angle lens in very close makes you feel that you're inhabiting a magical and surreal world. And think about it. This is altered consciousness. When you take drugs, if any of you take drugs, when you're at a concert and there's a light show, when there's loud rhythmic music, you feel yourself being affected, but you can't quantify why you're being affected by that. And that is a filmmaker, you look at another French filmmaker, Gaspard Noy, who did a film like Enter the Void. His use of wide angle, moving, flowing cameras, tracking shots, crane shots, do this same thing. It makes you feel as an audience in ways that you can't specifically quantify. And that's what the filmmaker is doing here as well. The use of color, there's a brilliant... Uh, cinematographer works mainly out of Hong Kong named Chris Doyle, who radically altered all of our understanding of cinematography by not correcting light sources. All light sources have a different color balance, something we call color temperature. And the tradition was that you balance one light with another. Outside light is blue, inside light is red. If you're going to mix them together, you put a gel over the window, which is red, so the outside light becomes red, like the interior light is, and it balances. Um, when you have phosphor vapor lights outside, they have sort of a greenish blue uh, color to them. Other lights can be orange. Uh, you always correct them so everything comes within a particular limited amount of color temperature, not Chris Doyle. Um, what he did was would mix all these different colors together and leave them. And you think, oh, you can't do that because the eye, the eye can't adjust. And suddenly the world isn't as we experience it, even if it is actually happening physically in that way. But that's the point. Because when the world is altered, as if you're going on a dream, it's like Alice in Wonderland, like you're entering your interior world 
And suddenly the way you mediate what's presented to you is wholly different. And I would conjecture more emotional because it is surreal. And so some of the most interesting filmmakers working work in a way that they alter the ordinary uh, world and we no longer see it in a conventional way. And that means we enter into a different mode and a different understanding. Charlie Kaufman in a film like Being John Malkovich. Um, these images are so strange, so unusual, so surreal that you would think, oh, it's going to take you out of the story. You're not going to believe the story. But what Charlie Kaufman would certainly say is film is not about the bloody story. It's about where the audience is emotionally and intellectually and viscerally, and you're going to affect them more profoundly if you can alter the way they mediate that physical world that you present. I love that. You, uh, this is good. So you mentioned uh, music also just just a minute ago. We we brought this up. I brought this up a couple of times in different ways. But I this this uh, this film specifically this soundtrack. I so music was my first art form. I, I grew up playing music, and and that's you know started playing piano and, and drums and guitars and bands and all the things. And so I've always really had this uh, just deep connection uh, and experience with music. So I just love a good soundtrack. And I love when uh, films use music in a really interesting way to, as one of those puzzle pieces that we've talked about before. So this soundtrack specifically is incredibly well known for how it actually complements the film's tone and its atmosphere, like you're talking about this whimsical kind of fantasy type feel at times. Uh, but I also know writers and producers that uh, don't necessarily listen to music a lot, or uh, that's not really one of the things in their bag of tricks, right? Um, so. I'm curious about you as a director, as a writer, as a filmmaker, just your personal uh, relationship with music. And if you, if it's like where it is on the priority list for you as a tool in your, in your work. First of all, I didn't know that you had a background in music. It's good to get to know you in new ways. Um, maybe that's why we're connecting uh, in such a profound way on these, on these podcasts. Um, I think music goes to so much of what I talk about in filmmaking because it is a non-specific way, a non-quantitative way, quantitative way anyway, of affecting audience, of eliciting an emotional response. I'm interested for you as a musician, if you write or if you play, you know when you're playing that you're either responding to it emotionally or the audience is. Do you know what series of notes or whether minor or major key will exactly affect an audience in an exact way? Or is it something that is pure intuition? I, me personally, is more on the latter. I wish I was the former. I wish I, I stuck with it and could really get into the weeds of, of that type and know how to craft and, and you know, because there are, I do know people that can do that. They know the arrangements. They know what to put together to make people feel certain ways just based on like historical, you know, music and, and how and what we know about it but no i am not one of those it's uh it's it's uh it's all feel especially nowadays <laughs> yeah me. i think but i think you're doing yourself an injustice i i ian arbor who was the i mean the brilliant composer on grq my new film um and just won two american music awards or nominated for two awards won one of them um really gifted and i i mean he's just a genius i turned to Ian and i said so do you know how music will affect an audience uh exactly i mean do you know if you do this one chord progression the audience will always feel this way and he said no he said that he's got intuition and feelings like what you're describing in your own work but that there's nothing specific that he can point to that he'll use this note or this chord or this chord series to affect an emotion at this moment he uses an old synthesizer which is fantastic um not one that is programmable, that can be repeated, as I mentioned before. Um, and he uses it, and sounds come out, and they seem right to him at a particular time. And he presumes it'll be right for the audience and right for my movie, and it was. So I think music is kind of our Rosetta Stone in my understanding of so much of how film works, in that it can't be measured or quantified. That as directors and as artists, we have intuitions, and we use those intuitions, and we create something. It can be in our writing, our direction of performances, our mise-en-scene, um, the way we construct a shot, the composition, uh, 
the orchestration of all these things together. And then we present it to an audience and the audience is affected, but maybe not just by the story that we're telling, but how we use all these other elements. I think the attraction to story and orthodoxy and convention is to do with fear of intuition because intuition can't be quantified, can't be absolutely determined. And therefore we can't absolutely determine the result of what we present to our audience. And because so much money is spent on film, our investors and collaborators want us to absolutely quantify what effect we're going to have on audience. Most of all, that the film's going to be liked and that people will go to see it and spend money and they'll get their money back. There's nothing wrong with that. We have a moral obligation to our investors to make sure they do get their money back. But at the same time, I don't think art can be quantified in that way. I think it becomes reductionist. And that's why the obsession with conventional narrative in Hollywood and elsewhere is a start of filmmaking we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years. So many of the films we've looked at in these podcasts already are essentially non-narrative. I think that Lady Bird kind of has a narrative, but a lot of it isn't narrative. Certainly Lost in Translation, kind of has a narrative, but it's meandering and just a series of, of episodes, one with the other. GRQ has a narrative, but also deals with the unconscious mind and fantasies. I think for me, for my preference, for my sensibility, the ability to free ourselves of the convention of ordinarily understood narrative is the way to make the most impactful films. And here we see it in Amelie in a thousand uh, different ways. Each individual sequence is constructed in a way to affect audience. The use of colors, all those greens, for example, uh, are meant to take you out of your ordinary understanding of the conventional world. It's as if it's sending you a little subversive message. You're not looking at the world as it is. But by seeing the world as it isn't, we get to see the world as it is, as if for the first time. By reframing our experience of the ordinary world, we get to see the ordinary world with a clarity that we wouldn't see it if we didn't have our access to remarkable pieces of art. I want to go back to intuition before before I forget. Um, you, you, as this was a you know a big piece of what you just brought up. So one of the big kind of turning points in my creative career and just everything in general was when I learned to trust my taste and my intuition and, and start leaning on those more than uh, more, you know, tangible, uh, measurable uh, things uh, on certain projects, especially early, early in the career. Uh, I'm curious, and we don't have to keep this in, and this might go down a rabbit hole that, that might derail us, but do you, uh, do you have any, do you remember when you started trusting your, your taste and your intuition? And, and, and was that, has that always been there for you? Or is that something that you had to discover and find? Yeah, what a great, what a great um, and brilliant and difficult question. Um, I don't know if I do even now. I think it's a balance between the two, but it's, it's, it's always that balance in the creation of anything between fear and confidence. I encourage all my collaborators, my actors in particular, to take risks. So I create a working atmosphere on a set where people feel safe and can experiment with performance or their understanding of character. Same thing with the cinematographer, production designer, editor. Um, it's essential. But even when I look at that work that I have facilitated by creating that atmosphere, I'm never quite certain whether I made the right choice because there are so many variables at play. I'm certainly thinking about audience, but I also have to think about things like arc. Uh, do we want to show a lot at the beginning of the film and then have it not alter later in the film? Or do I want to withhold stuff? Because an actor is crying, will it make an audience cry? Or should the actor be hiding more from the audience, which I think is more impactful because when someone's trying to obscure their real feelings. It's the tragedy of our shared experience. And as you make the 2,000 or 3,000 decisions a day the director might have to make, you can't have absolute confidence in them all of the time. And you're certainly frightened of failure most of the time. 
So the minute fear becomes part of that equation, intuition starts to exit the room because you want empirical data that can confirm to you that your decision is correct. So you might turn to others in the room searching for validation, which is probably the most pernicious and self-subverting thing you can do because they don't understand your vision, even if you don't fully understand your vision. But they may be willing to confirm for you what they think is correct based on what? Based on the commonly held belief, which is the orthodoxy. So the minute you turn to the room and say, what do you think? The minute you do a survey, statistics, empiricism would tell us that most of the time, what will be presented back to you is mediocrity because it'll be the most widely held belief because that's the definition of mediocrity. So if when this director had stopped and said, I'm thinking of using lots of greens with a wide angle lens in very close on an actress that has kind of a, a feral look to her, I think the conventional view from most surveyed directors and producers would be, oh, no, don't do that. When you turn to people and say, I'm thinking of using non-narrative elements and not use the 3X structure, they would say, oh, no, don't do that. So I guess my principal intuition is to not trust convention. And most importantly, to understand the plasticity of the medium that we work in. That if we recognize that anything can be tolerated by an audience, because even without the presentation of narrative, there will be an imposition of narrative by most audiences. They want to see the film as conventional, no matter how unconventionally you make it, which gives you a license to go way out there because the audience will try to make it sensible and logical and ordered, even if it isn't. So my only intuition is be radical, to try to trust myself as best I can, to avoid the impulse to try to find validation, to recognize that validation can be subversive, but also to recognize that the entire artistic experience, the entire process of creative expression is wrought with uncertainty and insecurity, which you simply have to embrace. You're not going to be val validated by the muse or any divine hand. You simply have to trust in the uncertainty. Is that one of the circles you talk about with me? <laughs> you know, is that? that one of the circles you talk about? Uh, the thing seems to go around and somehow come back to order. I think that's... No, I just... I think it goes to the way I work, which is, is I have no idea where... I really have no idea when I'm going to set exactly how the scene's going to work. I write it. I write lots of notes and tell everyone what I think they should do. And then once this thing begins, I really quickly pivot. That's my, my only virtue is I suddenly think, hold on, where the actor's going with this and this improv is great. I wish I had written it this way, but I'm, I didn't. So, but I'll run with it anyway. Uh, there's a scene in a film I did um, with uh, John Malkovich huh. called Dominion, Tony Hale. And the two of them are chatting. I, I, I suddenly had this impulse that uh, Tony says to John, talking about something he's done, it's my whole life. And I wrote this line on the spot, just something struck me because I just had an argument with someone. And John responds, we all have lives. doesn't mean they're important. I don't, okay, this is going to sound, this is going to sound incredibly scripted. It is, it is 100% not though. Uh, I've seen, I've seen that movie that you're talking about the movie, and I, I saw it as last call. I know that exact scene and that exact line. And it's one of my favorite <laughs> lines of the movie of his. So just to, just to go back really quickly. So that was, that was not in the, in the script. It was not in the original was script. On the day. Uh, John, myself and Tony were talking about lots of things, talking about what the scene was about. And then suddenly Tony began to riff about what his character was and how, how his character was trying to impress uh, John's character. And I thought, I hadn't thought of that before. That's very interesting. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, it's like we talked about validation and he's looking for validation from this guy who was so cynical, so full of hate for the world. This, in John's backstory, which we had evolved, um, he had uh, been to the war and seen horrible things and, and no longer believed in the ordinary decency. So couldn't see anything positive or virtuous in, in himself or anyone else. So for Tony's character to be selling to him, to try to impress him was something that was impossible. Uh, so it would make the most 
logical sense in the world, uh, as I thought about what Tony had just said, to feed John the line, um, tell him that his life doesn't matter. And it's the worst thing that Tony could have heard. That's... And it was inevitable that John had to say that. It's a great companion piece for Emily because Emily would never say that to anybody. She would say to everyone, your mm. life has purpose. It may not be obvious or ostensible, but it has purpose. It could just be enough to love someone. Now, to say it's enough to love and be loved in its turn sounds terribly lightweight. And this is to do with the intellectual pecking order of how we value ideas. Dark ideas to do with nihilism or existential understandings of the world, we see as sophisticated. A belief in innocent decency is seen as naive and childlike and not intellectual. So mm -hmm. filmmakers, independent filmmakers, who very often are intellectuals, are less inclined to make comedies than they are drama because they want to be important and be validated by like thinkers who are cynical and dark, who won't see comedy as significant or romance as significant, and will see only drama, particularly dark existential drama or nihilistic drama even better, as profound and significant. So it's a strange cycle in which films like this, which engender a desire to continue in life, are ghettoized and evacuated from the independent world. And only the studios make them because the studios who do metrics discover that people like validation and romance. And they're more cynically driven say, we can make more money if we make films like that. But what the studios are onto might be more profound and significant than the dark independent nihilists who are making films that may be important, but nobody wants to see. This, I thought this was going to be a harder turn, uh, but I want to talk about humor uh, and the use of humor. So this is, this is perfect. Um, so using, using Amelie, this, uh, yeah, this movie has this, just such a unique like sense of humor about it um, that it uses and it uses it to like develop the characters and, and further plot and everything. Um, and you have had a ton of experience in, I'm going to use the word traditional, but you've had a ton of experience in traditional comedies, uh, for example, like Waterboy and White Chicks and, half -baked. Uh, and it's, so they're half-baked. Um, but on the other side of it, you've also been involved with projects like Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming, which has its own flavor of, of, of humor, which, you know, helps connect the audiences to those characters. Um, so question, I'm, I'm curious why you think that humor is such a powerful tool at building connections and empathy with audiences through film? Really, again, important question. When I write a script, and I lecture about script writing, I point out to audiences, the, to writers, that you have to begin a film in a way that builds an empathic bridge between audience and character. So you have to determine as a writer what is appealing in a human. One of those things is vulnerability. When we see someone injured, our inclination is to nurture them or protect them. When we see someone who is frightened privately, someone's in a room preparing to go out, and we see them looking in the mirror repeatedly, we see they're insecure about their appearance. And they go out, and then someone makes fun of them. Simple device. Where does the audience sympathy come? It comes to the person they saw earlier by themselves terrified and insecure, because all of us feel a vulnerability. All of us are frightened. All of us have weaknesses. All of us find the world terrifying. All of us want to be loved and validated. No one is different from that. We talked about this in Monster. Even someone who's a serial killer still has the same human needs that the rest of ours have. This is a thing that sacredly binds us together, is our needs. So what is humor about? Humor is a desire for validation. We want other people to laugh. But it also has a basis in vulnerability. Very often, the foibles that we laugh at are failures, incompetencies, not core competencies. 
insecurities and our ordinary humanity. And what's so beautiful about Amelie is this is a collection of people who are strange. They're not conventionally beautiful. The guy in the bar with the huge ears and falls in love with the, the, the woman who works there is a strange looking dude. Uh, the woman he falls in love with is strange looking. Everyone is unusual and strange in some way distorted or um, has a kind of a disability. But that's our collective beauty. And it's the objective correlative of what our interior life is like. That we all see ourselves as wounded and injured and unattractive in some way. We're not as smart as someone else. We're not as beautiful as they are. We're not as rich as they are. We're not as empowered as they are. So humor has its foundation, most of all, in our shared humanity. And our shared humanity has to do with human insecurity and human need. So the minute we see these characters, these eccentric, eccentric characters with all their foibles and weaknesses, we love them and can laugh with them rather than at them, which is a special type of humor, which is edifying. I've I've been listening back on these these episodes. Uh, obviously, now that we have a few in the bag, and it's I it, talk about insecurities. I keep going back and forth, and I don't know whether me sitting back because I just get lost in listening. And I and that's one of the things that I try to do most in this is like really just try to uh, just take it all in. And it's um it's so funny because by the time uh, well. Whenever things are done, sometimes I completely forget where we are. Well, <laughs> so I have to like it, rearrange. It, it, look, it's, just because... it's, welcome to Steve Burns' experience. It, it, it's because I go all over the shop. Um, it's again the way my mind works <laughs> is that was I talking about human empathy? Was I talking about humor? Was I talking about eccentricity? Was I talking about how strange the characters look? But <laughs> look at my career, Vince. It's the same thing. I mean, I, I shot um, you know Half Baked uh, and I shot Monster. I did the action stuff on SWAT, yeah. and then I did White Chicks. Um, so I don't have a clearly defined identity. And it, it's kind of difficult because in Hollywood, you want to have a clearly defined identity. So you can you can monetize that. You can say, oh, he's the comedy guy. Um, he's the independent mm -hmm. film comedy guy. Or he's, after Monster and some other films, he's the dark drama guy. Uh, after I did Magic City, he's the big uh, budget TV episodic guy, but it's an art form. And I jump genres because I'm still trying to find not only where I have the easiest expression of my individual voice, but I need to experiment with that to find out which one gives me the greatest satisfaction as well. So don't, I... When I'm on set, people engage with me exactly as you're engaging with me. They go, where's he going with this? And I'm not saying that as like kind of braggadocious, like, isn't this cool? It's just my nature. But if I had to say it's a virtue, I would say for anyone making films, the ability to jump between your interest in cinematography and composition and color to your understanding of narrative, to your radical approaches to art and painting and music, you just have to embrace the chaos. Rather than looking for order, first embrace the chaos. Let it take you wherever you go. And then at the end, when you're maybe in your editing room and you got three weeks before you got delivery, you suddenly look at everything and say, wait, there is an order here. It's like all of my paragraphs and sentences, they seem to start in chaos and sometimes end in order. I think the order may be less substantive than the chaos, but still... That's the way my mind works. And that's the way I like to think the way creative process works. But if you begin an order with an orthodoxy, where you began this talk about, uh, you know, the way convention works, then I think you're not giving full voice to what may be best within you. Yeah, for the record, I love it. And I like from early days when we were talking about these conversations before we started recording these, this is actually the piece that I loved the most was us just talking and exploring. So that's, for me, that, that's everything for these. So first, 
I love it. Uh, the, the only question that comes in my mind is like, does anybody actually want to listen to these? But I think apparently <laughs> people do because I'm just getting lost in it. You're getting lost in it. And it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but real quick. So to, to go back though, um, this wasn't something that I wanted to talk about, but you, you brought it up. So I'm curious and we don't have to, but right now, <clears throat> I mean, for a while now, but especially in, uh, kind of the traditional, you know, corporate world, marketing world, business world, branding is just everywhere, right? So not just product branding and business branding, but the whole, you know, personal branding and who are you and what box can we put you in or what box are you putting yourself in? And when you were talking about it being an art form and being, um, you know, it's it's kind of an ever-changing thing. And then you as an artist being an ever-changing thing and you're taking in and you're, you're putting out and that's that's shifting you as an artist. Uh, and then you mentioned individual voice too. I'm curious, and there's no like, there was no planned question around this, but I just want to get your take on the balance of like an individual voice and individuality, but then also balancing that with what I consider to be the need to be flexible, to be a, a um, not just a successful creative, but when it comes to longevity and sustainability for a career, those are the things that you have to have. If you're, if you're inflexible, it, it's not going to last very long. So how do you balance that with knowing who you are and what you're wanting to say and the type of things that you're wanting to put out there, but then also kind of the ebb and flow of, of life as you go? It's tough, you know, because we're all commercial entities in our capitalism. I've got to be marketed. I've got to be sold if my new film, GRQ, doesn't sell, which I think it will apparently, then I'm no longer as valuable as a commodity as I was before and went to market. Same thing with any project I work on. If Monster hadn't won an Academy Award, a lot of money, maybe I would have been less valuable. If Noah Bombeck's films hadn't taken off and no got multiple Academy Awards, I may not have been as valuable. If White Chicks had not become the cultural phenomenon it became, I may not have been valuable. So in looking at those projects, first of all, could I have anticipated that each of those projects would have been successful as they were? No. You think you can, but you can't. You have to trust your intuitions, and your principal intuition is to do with choosing which people to work with rather than which individual project to work with. When I first met Noah Baumbach, we talked at great length about the French Nouveau Vague about French films in particular, which we both had a huge enthusiasm for. We then talked about important independent American filmmakers that we like and British ones. And that's how we connected. And I thought, wow, I'd really like to work with this guy because he loves movies. He's a cinest and intellectual and is very, very funny. Kicking and Screaming, I, when first reading, I, was, I liked the script. I wasn't overwhelmed by it. It wasn't until I saw what Noah did with his actors and the way the lines would be delivered and the way the thing was structured, that I realized just how magical of a filmmaker and as a writer and as a mind Noah was. But I knew as a person, I loved him and wanted to work with him. It was why we did three films back, 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 back. We did Mr. Jealousy, Kicking and Screaming, and Highball, which has now kind of become an interesting phenomena. And I mention here because at the end of Mr. Jealousy, we put a lot of the same actors together in a room, and I think we shot the feature film highball in two days with a camera on a shoulder running around the room, floating lights, all these ideas I later borrowed and put us on my own movies. But Noah wanted to do this radical experiment. It was very radical and some of it worked and some of it didn't. But what was important was he was willing to make the experiment, which then changed our understanding of how film worked, how quickly we could shoot, how actors work, how lighting worked. We had the actors moving lights to it. So spin this light thing around when I walked by you and everybody was helping. And it was kind of a nightmare. It was also kind of uh, magical. But what was significant was I chose to work with Noah because I sensed, intuited that his sensibility was special. The Wayans, I love hmm. Keaton Ivory Wayans. I love him. A brother to me. Sweetest man. Hmm. Incredibly funny. Now, people were saying to me, do you really want to go do a Wayne's book? They're not very sophisticated. They're kind of vulgar. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about how evolved and sophisticated and charming and loving and kind Keenan was. 
and we talked about all things, all sorts of things to do with our life and our adult life and our children and our wives and all the rest of it. I thought, wow, this is a great guy to hang around with. And he explained to me his theories of comedy at great length. I learned so much about comedy from Keenan, so much, but also about human beings, about why they laugh, about how we can connect with the audience, about how they can feel they're part of a joke rather than the object of a joke, which is very important in everything that he did. And then I watched him at close range as he would set these sequences up. And I came to understand how comedy worked, but then also how empathy works. They may seem farcical, but you care enough about these characters that the joke works. If the farce is so big that you don't believe the characters exist, jokes never work. Same lesson that Adam Sandler provided me with another great human being about as ridiculous as the character was in Waterboy, he existed enough in our collective consciousness that we thought of him as a human. We saw his frailty and vulnerability, not unlike the fallibility of the characters in, in Amelie. And that's why we can share laughter with them. The weak, strange, eccentric, and vulnerable we find ultimately charming, not threatening. And we feel in some way superior to them, even as we feel connected with them, the way we might with a strange looking bulldog or pet that is not attractive because of how strange they are. To love people for their eccentricity rather than despite it is central to our understanding of this type of comedy. So comedy has informed everything I've done, including my dramas, because it's given me a better understanding of how audiences think and feel and what they desire. And Noah Baumbach, Keen Ivory Wayans, Adam Sandler uh, have more in common than they have differences. This is good. So we've, um, you're bringing up a lot of, I mean, we're talking about other movies now, and this is kind of the last area that I have. And then I want to open it up because I'm curious. I, I realize that I have never, I don't think, asked you why you've picked each film. I think we just immediately go into questions and back and forth. So I, uh, I don't know if there are direct reasons, but at the end, I'm, I'm curious if you do have anything as far as why you picked this one. Um, but before that, uh, I want to talk about the homage. Uh, this, uh, this movie is full of nods uh, to all sorts of things, classic films, uh, even like specific techniques from other filmmakers. They point to classic French cinema uh, with references. They nod even to the silent era uh, in some ways. And even some, uh, well, this will, even some Hitchcock uh, parallels with how uh, she observes her neighbors, uh, which I thought was really interesting because we've obviously talked about Rear Window already and, and talked about the voyeuristic uh, uh, flavor in that film. So this movie is just it's just full of all those those nods and those homages to other to other areas which i personally love in movies i love seeing them i love experiencing them it feels like an extra connection with the filmmaker and the people that made it it's just it's fantastic to me um but you you know on the other side of it doing doing all the things and making the actual films um have you have you ever included uh any call them homages or nods or little references like this in your own work or are there any that you have as favorites or how do you feel about adding these things in general it's interesting um i worked with a filmmaker a lot named ernest dickerson who's one of the great cinests and to be spike lee's cinematographer wanted to become a really good director and i had some really interesting films with mm -hmm. him and he does homages all the time and they work for him i i reference lots of other movies i borrow uh, techniques like this kind of homage or, or a theft, I guess. Uh, I steal techniques from Hitchcock in particular, but from other filmmakers also, but less inclined to pay a homage because it's kind of a joke and it, a joke has to fall within a particular structure. And that would be to this, to a surrealism. Absolutely. So in this particular film, it's perfectly logical because it's so surreal in Amelie that all these references to shared culture are part of the charm of the film because we're not inhabiting fully this narrative ever. We're always slightly outside of it, but that's okay. We can't come to believe that narrative is the only thing that works. We can simply inhabit an experience which 
overwhelms us viscerally, intellectually, emotionally, without it being a story. We can go to a concert and be overwhelmed by the music without it telling us a story. We can go into an art gallery and be moved by paintings without telling a story. So Emily is not a story. There's a story there, but it's a series of events and experiences and stimuli that provide us with things that are emotional, intellectual, spiritual responses. And that can be included in homage. In fact, it's logical when we talk about this idea of semiology. Semiology is so central to our understanding of French philosophy and French filmmaking that the an encoding of an idea is the way all language works. There's an idea. It has a representation in a word or an image. And that word or image comes in our mind to represent the idea. That's signifier and signified. The signified is the idea. The signifier is what we see or hear or presented to us. And that immunes all of French filmmaking. And so as this film is about our experiences of life in the world, as we experience life in the world, our experiences are informed by cultural events like movies, like history, like paintings, mm -hmm. like uh, everything else. So tying the zeitgeist into the film for a film like this makes perfect sense. One of the reasons I love cinema francais and, and French culture is that there's this continuum in French filmmaking, which ties all of French films into all of French culture in many, many movies. And this because of the Nouveau Vague and Jean-Luc Godard, and Godard really revolutionizes our understanding of narrative film because Godard would throw in images uh, that were culturally significant that had nothing to do with the narrative because Godard was writing an essay in each of his films about the culture as well as telling a story, as well as presenting ideas. I would suggest that, as odd as it seems, this charming little film was much influenced by Jean-Luc Godard and the Nouveau Vague and all the revolutionary filmmakers that we saw producing important movies in the 1960s. So it's wholly logical for its particular form. So speaking of it, uh, getting to it, why, why did you pick this film? I, uh, I love this film for so many reasons, and I wish, we would have, I wish this question would have been there for each one. It, it's such an obvious one, but uh, why this one? What is, it, what is it about it for you? I think, you know, you and me, you and I have talk about our lives uh, separate from this podcast about, you know, the complexities of our individual lives and uh, good things and the hardships as well. Um, and uh, my life is complex, like everybody's is, and I need sometimes solace from the unrelenting inequities of my life experiences. Uh, and I have always found that individual solace in movies. Uh, the term escape is, sounds pejorative, that we go to movies to escape the world. I don't think we do. I think we go to movies so that our world is reframed in a way that's more palatable, tolerable, and acceptable. So when I see a film like this, it makes me joyful. It makes me feel there's the capacity for forgiveness, that there's a capacity for love, and that hopelessness is a delusion, that ultimately the world is alterable, and there are people abroad in this world who are capable of genuine kindness. I understand that the cinematography and the compositions and the editing and music suggest a surrealism, but as I said before, this surrealism only goes to more deeply penetrate my unconscious and suggest to my somewhat tortured sensibility that there is hope. And I leave a film like this full of hope and full of a sense of certainty in an otherwise uncertain world that there are other people who are kind 
um, who may care enough about me that they can overlook my transgressions and failures. And that's not so different, I would conjecture, from Lost in Translation, where two people meet with all their imperfections, uh, a young girl who's achieved nothing in life, an old guy who's old. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm not as, if I was ever attractive, I'm even less attractive now than I was before. And there's a hopelessness to age, but they connect. No sex, no betrayals, just a connection so that for a moment, both can feel less lonely and less frightened. And there's a hopefulness in that. In Ladybird, the idea that uh, there can be forgiveness in complex relationships, that she can come to understand her mother at the end. And for all the conflict they had, that they can reconnect. And that beneath it all, there was a profound love that informed all their um, behavior, I think is um, significant um, and important. Rear Window, even though it's about a murder, I think that what makes that film special for me is the connection between uh, Jimmy Stewart character um, and his, I guess, fiance. Um, uh, that they have this very sophisticated repartee that suggests a profound love between them. And we like to see people in love, particularly in a mature and highly evolved uh, love form. But also, like all of Hitchcock films, as if to say, I know how perverse and strange you really are. Um, that's okay. Uh, we're all that way, and therefore you're not alone. Because who wouldn't be looking out that rear window at other people's lives? We all enjoy doing that because we're all voyeurs in our own way. And there's a gentleness to those characters to suggest that these are not pernicious, cruel, heartless individuals. They're just flawed like all of us are. So in each of these films, there is a humanity, kind of a Frank Capra, Jean Renoir, um, Emily type humanity at their core that I find appealing because if the world isn't like that, I want it to be like that. And if it is like that, I want to remind it, I want to be reminded it's like that because if the world is darker than these films portray, I find it almost intolerable. The more that we talk, there are so many points that, I mean, this, this, this five minutes right here just brought together so many things from the past handful of conversations that we've had. That's incredible. Um, this this grouping of movies is now in my mind like it's starting to solidify as this this group of work as opposed to like these disparate things that we're just kind of talking about now and all these little connections which is uh, uh did, I, did i skip a film where did um, i skip the film we haven't mentioned jericho we haven't seen it yet in this in this uh podcast but did i mention all the films we discussed or i missed one uh no you, you hit them all uh rear window lost in translation ladybird we're on amelie yeah, yeah. and I Monster. Monster. I didn't mention oh. Monster. Monster is, is a is a darker film, I would say. But as I as conjectured before, as I when we spoke about it, it is ultimately a love story. It's about the darkest of mm. people, but about how the thing we all share is the need for love. So I think Patty Jenkins would say, as I would say, that for whatever anyone thinks the film's about, it's basically a love story. And how you really have to learn from our experience of human interaction that the darkest people or the most successful people or the most isolated people all have this shared human need for love and companionship. And if that's a starting place, then it's a lot easier to care about other people. And if film has a function, maybe that's one of its better functions. Any last thoughts before, I don't want to make it too hard, turn into trivia, well, just, just, just <laughs> but I have some good ones. Why this film is so magical and I can watch it. You know, I, I break films in different categories. Films that are good that I won't watch again. Um, films that are good that I should watch again. And films that are good that I do watch over and over again with never getting bored with them. Emily's a film that I can watch over and over again because it's mm. 
I can't remember the narrative because the narrative is so disparate. The characters are so eccentric and charming that I can just look at an image and not care what they're saying. I just like looking at the image. Her face is so yeah. delightful. The the strange little man in the in the coffee bar is so strange looking, but so delightful. The people in her building, the strange artists and things, are so charming and eccentric that these are people you want in your life. You recognize that the people that make our life interesting are not the ordinary ones, but the extraordinary ones. And it doesn't matter whether they're rich and successful or not. What they're rich in is life experience and their alternate realities. And by mixing people with alternate realities, our lives become more interesting. We don't want to just people our world with people who are like ourselves or mirrored of our own sensibilities. So you feel that you're inhabiting this world and that at every turn, you're having some new experience that you can't anticipate its resolution. And that makes it incredibly interesting. It makes you want to live in Paris. It makes you want to live this life and, and meet these people and live French culture for all its strangeness. It's wonderful. I completely agree. And we didn't, I, 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 I purposely, and I don't know how I feel about it now, but I, I didn't actually um, put down too many questions or notes around uh, visual components of this film, because I feel like we've talked about that a lot so far, but this film is just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, what you just said, some of these things that you can just look at, like you need nothing else, but, but, you know, a still shot. It's just an unbelievably yeah, beautiful great. film. Cool. Trivia? Sure. I, my favorite part, as you know, so lay it on me. I like the one. I like these. I, I'm, I, I am a fan of these. Uh, let's see. Okay. So we'll start easy. Uh, Audrey, the, uh, the actor, the, the actress that played the, uh, Amelie, the main character, she, so if you haven't seen the film yet, there are several scenes and it's, it's one of her things to do, which is skipping stones. Uh, it's a through line throughout the entire film. Uh, she collects stones in different places that she goes, and there's there's various scenes of her skipping stones uh, in really beautiful setups. However, uh, Audrey did not know how to skip stones, apparently, and all of that was special effects. <laughs> when it when I guess you know if you've seen the if you've seen the movie and know the importance of kind of that that thing for her, that's that's I thought that was pretty interesting. All right, what else? The there's okay. So she's watching at one point. She's watching a, a documentary. It's a it's a, an imaginary documentary, but it's a black and white documentary. And there's a funeral scene in this documentary that she's watching on TV. And apparently, the footage that they used for that funeral uh, was uh, was from a 1923 newsreel segment about the death of Sarah Bernhardt. Wow. So that actual funeral was yeah was was newsreel footage from. Uh, yep, Sarah Bernhardt's funeral. That's um, and, <laughs> Which and going to this fantastic. idea of the, the continuum. Sarah Bernhardt, one of the most important actresses in the history of France, so yeah, perfectly part of the continuum. Right. Um, it's fantastic. And by the way, lots of references to Jacques, and Jacques I thought, Tati, a really important uh, French filmmaker from earlier, and the composition is very Tati-like. So it's it's the quintessentially French bit of culture. This movie. Uh, okay, so now the last two that I have are, they're all about the beginning, but I think the beginning is, is wonderful in itself. So the opening scene where, um, so the opening of this movie, there's a part where usually, you know, the, the opening credits are rolling and, and the, the crew and producer's name and directors and such are, are up on the screen. I didn't, I completely missed this. And I don't even know if this is a well-known thing, but that uh, sequence where they're listing all the crew members at the beginning. Uh, each little piece that the young Amelie is doing, those little clips of, of her doing things like playing and, and interacting, all of those have uh, something to do with the crew member that they're showing <laughs> on the screen at the time. So for, so costume designer, for example, the the child actor is like dressing up in costumes and each one of those aligns to the wow. name that they have on the screen at the wow. moment, which I thought was really cool. cool and what, I mean, and that's, I thought that was fantastic. That's just, that's one of those things that I get excited about, especially when I know it now and go back to watch it, because it's something that you obviously have to think of ahead of time. Like it's not, it wasn't a mistake that that happened. This was a planned thing and they didn't have to do that. And I always enjoy when they don't have to do those pieces and it just, it just elevates it so much. Um, no, it makes the film more, more okay, special. And then the last you know, there's a thing um, um, that uh, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, the filmmaker, used to put certain things in the background of action. And very often audience wouldn't see it. 
But on seeing a film for the second or third scene, you suddenly see something in the background. And you say, I never saw it before. That's really funny. It's called the Lubitsch touch. You would do things that weren't part of the narrative, but were just interesting little bits of things, shtick that would play in the background. So I, that's what, one of the reasons I love this film is there's so many things happening within the frame and so many different levels that you can miss them. But each time you pick something up, it's like finding some um, little golden egg. And it's kind of very special. All right. So last one, uh, back to the introduction. So I thought that you might uh, find this interesting specifically. So in the introduction, when the narrator says the introduction kind of shows this like montage and sequence of how Amelie was born. So how her parents came together and then how she was born during that sequence uh, there, when the narrator says nine months later, she was born. Uh, the footage that's being shown at that time is of a pregnant woman's stomach growing larger uh, during her, her nine-month pregnancy. And this footage apparently was taken from a time-lapse, a time-lapse film called 17 Seconds, to Sophie, uh, 17 Seconds to Sophie, which was a short film in 1998. Uh, it was shot on 16 millimeter uh, using a Bolex mounted on a wall, and the dad clicked off two frames every day for nine months, the entire nine-month pregnancy. Lighting was fixed, background was fixed, focus was fixed, and the only thing that changed was the mother's stomach. So that's how they um, you know, collected all those images. And apparently this short, this short won first prize uh, in an international film festival that year for experimental category in 98. So all of that said, like this was an entire project of its own, this short that was put together and won and it did its own thing and, and it had its own existence. And then it was its own piece in this film uh, which was its own project and had its own existence. It's just, to me, it's just such a phenomenally beautiful thing how these fit together sometimes. It's so cool. Well, it's very interesting when you, well, good that we're doing GRQ next week because we did a lot of that in GRQ. And this goes to, I guess, if anything that sums up what we're talking about, about the flexibility of mind. That the more limited you see your ability to make use of film form or any artistic form, the more limited you're going to be as a filmmaker or as an artist or as a thinker or as a person that the world by its nature is chaotic and we're desperate to impose order on that chaos and we can either do it sooner or later but if we do it sooner we very often impose a false order because the chaos is so terrifying to us and if we go with something we said earlier in this discussion that it's only through the embracing of the chaos that we discover a bigger truth in a better film, then we have to delay our considerable desire for the imposition of order and structure until such time as we found a truth that we believe resonant and significant. And the idea of using found footage, footage from other films, combining animation with live action like we do to a certain degree on GRQ, to use improvisation, to use historic footage, to use references to things that have nothing to do with narrative, to use voiceover, to use parallel narrative, to use radical editing techniques, to use stop motion, to use zooms, to use cranes, to use um, motion control, to combine all these different things together with the understanding that your object is to affect audience, not just to tell a story using conventional methodologies, is hugely liberating.